From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. It's Election Day, and we'll check in live with Colorado Secretary of State Jenna Griswold. How quickly might we expect Colorado results tonight? Then the head of the FBI in Colorado on stopping voter intimidation and violence. I feel like, especially here in Colorado and, and, and also across the nation, that we are well prepared to address all the threats uh, that we're seeing uh, leading up to the election. Also, some Election Day trivia. How did Coloradans get their ballots during the state's first elections? And how stores are preparing for the possibility of another COVID lockdown rush. Plus, Colorado soccer star Lindsay Horan on her return to the game. Everyone's a little bit spread out, a six-feet kind of thing. But yeah, you know, obviously just happy to be back on the field together. The majority of CPR's membership base gives monthly. Thank you to our Evergreen members for making support for Colorado Public Radio an ongoing priority in your budget. Your monthly donation is CPR's most reliable source of revenue, and it's put to work each and every day directly serving communities across our great state. This has been a year filled with unexpected change. As a member, you ensure that free access to news, information, and music remains unchanged. Thank you. A mariachi band playing outside the Denver Elections Division this morning, Clerk Paul Lopez's way of encouraging people to vote. Across town, Luis Ramirez was casting his ballot in person at a vote center. And I've always voted on the day of, so I wasn't going to let anything stop me. Got my mask, got my distance, got my hand sanitizer in there, got my sticker and even some candies that they gave me. So I was excited to vote today. For Ramirez, voting means earning the right to gripe if you don't like the direction the country's headed. If you don't vote today, you can't complain for the next four years. So I don't want to hear it if you didn't vote. I'm Ryan Warner. It's Election Day, and this is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Already more than 2.8 million Coloradans have voted. What do elections officials expect today and tonight? Secretary of State Jenna Griswold is on the line. Secretary, welcome back to the program. Thank you for having me. How's turnout looking, maybe compared to the last presidential election? Turnout is looking fantastic. Um, We are really close to uh, exceeding the total turnout from 2016, Uh, As of last night, uh, we were 20,000 plus votes short. So I I expect us to exceed it and hopefully set some records. Um, It sounds to me like you expect a lot of voting to occur in Colorado today on Election Day. Do I have that right? Yes. You know, a lot of people will vote on Election Day, um, and that's typical of any election. Uh, And we really encourage Coloradans who still have their ballots at home to return them to one of hundreds of drop boxes. There's over 380 drop boxes across the state. Or, of course, you could go vote in person also. And in Colorado, you can even register today and cast a ballot. We believe in accessible elections and making sure that Colorado voters have the access that they need. All right. Same day registration written into the law in Colorado. So we mentioned that uh, thus far about 2.8 million Coloradans have voted. What's been the partisan breakdown of those ballots, Secretary? So as of 11.30 last night, um, 920,925 Democrats have voted 
812,657 Republicans and over a million unaffiliated voters. So 1,065,011 unaffiliated voters had cast a ballot. Um, and of course, lots of people go vote today. So we'll be releasing more numbers throughout the day to make sure that everybody's up to date with the latest. So unaffiliated leading, followed by Democrats and then Republicans. Some context here. The Louisville-based political consulting firm Magellan notes that there's, quote, diametrically opposed rhetoric coming from Democrats and Republicans on voting by mail. Democrats have been proud to vote by mail to show President Trump in their own small way that mail ballots are safe. Republicans may be waiting to cast their vote in person. Uh, So that will also shake out today. As for tonight, Secretary, how soon do you think we'd have Colorado results? You know, how the state voted for president, Senate and so Mm -hmm. on. Absolutely. So we expect to post 70 to 80 percent of the results tonight. Uh, They will start going up shortly after polls close. Uh, So at 7 p.m., county clerks will start sending uh, information of the tallied ballots uh, as of 7 p.m., and we'll start pushing that out. And just like the numbers today, we'll update the results periodically throughout the night. Um, But I, I do think it's worth noting that election night results are never final results in any state. Uh, Not only will the counties continue to process ballots in the coming days, overseas and military voters still have several days, nine days actually, to get their ballots in uh, after Election Day through the mail. And there's other post-election activity that will happen. So help me understand whether you think the pandemic is in any way suppressing the vote, is making people hesitant to vote. Um, or, or do you think that because Colorado has vote by mail, that's really not an issue? What's your sense? Well, I, I think that we have a great election model that withstands all sorts of dynamics, including the pandemic. Uh, you know, in our statewide primary in June, we saw a record turnout. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are seeing incredibly high turnout for this election. But it's not only unique to Colorado. We've seen really high early voting in many states across the nation, including in states like Texas and Florida. So I do believe that Americans are really determined this election to, to cast the ballot. Here in Colorado, of course, the use of mail ballots is a, is a great mitigation tool. Uh, the majority of Coloradans will never go into a voting center. Uh, and for those who do, you know, I issued a series of election rules to make sure that in-person voting is as safe as possible. I wonder if you might draw another comparison between 2016 and 2020. Uh, how have cyber attacks on Colorado's voting system compared thus far? Well, you know, our voting uh, infrastructure and, and really all government infrastructure is consistently scanned. Uh, so both domestic and international actors will scan uh, our infrastructure, seeing uh, if there is any vulnerabilities. Uh, And very luckily, we are considered the safest state in which to cast a ballot today. Um, We take immense pride in always being on the cutting edge of cyber innovation, um, and we're very confident. Uh, And to be very clear, uh, the scans that happen are on election support systems. The actual voting uh, is incredibly secure because we use paper ballots, which can't be hacked. We actually make sure that any voting equipment is uh, securely built and not connected to the Internet. And we are the first state in the nation to do a risk-limiting audit, which shows to a statistical degree of certainty that the outcomes are correct. 
Uh, one emerging threat that we did see in 2016 that remains very strong is the prevalence of disinformation. Mm. National intelligence has warned that disinformation uh, will have an uptick all of this week, including after the election. So we have new protocols and initiatives to try to push back and combat disinformation. On the channels, perhaps, where that disinformation is occurring, I gather? Well, you know, disinformation is the use of social media by foreign adversaries to try to undermine confidence and and trick American voters out of their vote. Uh, So it's really important that all voters know where to find trusted sources of information and know the threat. So when it comes to the electoral process, if you have any questions whatsoever, please go to GoVoteColorado.gov or your local county clerk. Um, We also have a new unit within my office that is working with uh, DHS, FBI, and other federal partners uh, to quickly identify foreign misinformation about Colorado's election Hmm. uh, and and make sure that we are sharing that very rapidly, uh, both with national intelligence, but also with the social media uh, companies. Um, So overall, you know, uh, our elections are are going very well, and we're uh, just excited to, to have all, all, so many Coloradans vote today. You say DHS, Department of Homeland Security. I, I wonder if you might nerd out yes. f- with me a little bit on ballots and and <laughs> and um, and voting, sure. Secretary. So, uh, you know, I I cast a ballot as many Coloradans did days and days ago. Uh, that was marked as received by the clerk of the county where I live. And has that been tallied yet? And you just have to then like press a button and. And the math is done. Like, what exactly happens at 7 p.m.? So that's a, a great question, and always happy to nerd out with you, Ryan, okay. on ballot. <laughs> uh, so, in, so you never have to ask. Always, always willing. Um, so, in Colorado, as soon as the county clerks receive a ballot, uh, they start verifying signatures and, and getting things in order. Then, 15 days before the election, um, they start scanning in those ballots uh, for counting. Now, none of those results are shared. No one is aware of them. But come 7 p.m., they'll actually load the results on an encrypted USB and send them to us. Um, And then, of course, we we get those results. um, But we have a lot of safeguards in place, including encryption um, and our risk-limiting audit. So what will happen after the election is that we will start an audit, uh, totally randomized, uh, one uh, statewide audit and then one county-wide audit in every county, uh, where the county clerks will actually go poll ballots and compare them to uh, the tabulation. And that's how we have such a high degree of confidence in our elections. We know that if there is any discrepancies happening, uh, we will catch them. Thank you so much for your time on what I imagine is a busy day. Well, thank you so much. Um, And I I would just say one last thing for all the voters who haven't voted yet. Just remember, you can still register. uh, You can still drop off your ballot or vote in person. And all the information uh, on any of those processes is at GoVoteColorado.gov. Colorado Secretary of State Jenna Griswold joining us on this election day. Meantime, the FBI in Colorado says it's monitoring foreign and domestic terrorists who might try to destabilize the election and its results. CPR's justice reporter Allison Sherry spoke with Michael Schneider, the FBI's special agent in charge here. The FBI is absolutely committed to ensuring a fair and safe election this election cycle, while also protecting the integrity of the election process. 
we're very focused on four primary lines of effort, which align with the four threats that we see the election cycle facing this this year. And that is the malign foreign influence threat mm-hmm. and in the uh, cyber threat, and then our traditional election crimes threat. And then lastly, the um, the threat posed by violent extremists kind of leading up to on and after the election. And so all our efforts right now are very much aligned with those threats across the division, obviously working very, very closely with our interagency partners, our state, local, and federal law enforcement partners, along with the uh, election officials as well. Are you seeing any of those foreign threats affect anything in Colorado? So, uh, absolutely, some of that's hard to talk to. Um, Certainly, we can't talk about anything that's ongoing from an investigative standpoint, but what what I can say is that when we talk about the malign foreign influence threat, most of that activity is is online uh, using the Internet, and uh, as you're well aware, the Internet has no boundaries, and and so certainly the the, the people of Colorado um, have been impacted by that, and it's our job to make sure that we're taking the appropriate steps to educate people about our concerns associated with what they may be reading online or seeing online, and helping them make sure that they're kind of taking the appropriate steps and have the uh, appropriate level of skepticism about what they're seeing to help them make the right decisions. A lot of the work you've been doing now has been obviously leading up to election day, so it has to do with whatever sort of foreign interference there may be to affect people before they vote, to affect people while they're voting. And then you've kind of got another chapter, which starts at 7 p.m. on November 3rd, that is like another set of planning. And I wondered if you could kind of talk about the shift between what you're doing now and then how that moves and changes the minute that the voting is over. One of our threats that we are and lines of effort that we're very much focused on is our concern of the possibility of activity by violent extremists leading up to on or or after the election. You know, that's what we would more specifically classify as as, uh, um, primarily the domestic terrorism threat. And certainly um, that is a huge priority for the FBI. It has been and will continue to be uh, after the election process. Uh, we, We work very closely with our law enforcement partners to identify potential violent extremists, individuals who are intent of committing violence in furtherance of any ideology. It's not so much about the ideology, and it's certainly not about any groups they may belong to. We are solely focused on the violent activity uh, associated with individuals that they may be looking to commit because they're unhappy with an election result. We conduct very thorough investigations, and we just ask the uh, we can't do this on our own. It's, it's something that we, we truly need the public's help in addressing and ensuring that uh, they see something that they're concerned about, that they relay that information to, to their law enforcement officials or to the FBI directly. Is this usual or is there more pre- preparation this year? So our posture leading up to the election is similar to what we've done in prior election cycles. We will have a command posted up here in our field office here in Denver, and if all goes well, it'll, it'll terminate the day after the election. We have already stood up our national command post back in D.C. at FBI headquarters, and that is normal. We set, we set up those command posts as a mechanism to ensure good coordination between headquarters and all the 56 different FBI field offices. We set up our command post here in, in FBI Denver to ensure good coordination with our state and local uh, partners as well. Um, so from that standpoint, the preparation is very consistent in, in, in what we've done in prior election cycles. Certainly, certain components of threats uh, and the lines of effort that I hit on earlier, I think the, the threat level is probably a little bit more elevated than it's been in prior election cycles. Back in 2016, we saw the start of 
some significant online activity in the social media, uh, the malign foreign influence piece, uh, and, uh, and I think the intelligence community uh, is much more in tune with that. Um, this go around, and, and certainly back in, t- in 2018 as well, um, we made significant strides in ensuring better preparation across not just the uh, intelligence community and, and law enforcement community, but educating the public as well. So it's hard to compare one election cycle to the other, but uh, what I can say is that I feel like, especially here in Colorado and, and, and also across the nation, that we are well prepared to address all the threats uh, that we're seeing uh, leading up to the election. Are you seeing the malign foreign influence affect the extremists, the domestic extremist groups? I mean, is there a, is there any symbiosis there? So we have definitely seen some effort, and, and I think it was back in 2018, there were a number of uh, um, individuals in Russia who ultimately were indicted associated with creating fictitious uh, personas with the sole intent of creating discourse here in the United States. And they were able to do that by taking on the identity of some of the uh, more extremist groups here in the United States to try to create discourse um, amongst the different groups here in the country. So we definitely see some connection between that, the overseas activity and, and uh, um, the domestic threat as well. You're seeing that now, too. We do. And that is Special Agent Michael Schneider, who's in charge of the FBI field office in Denver, speaking with my colleague Allison Sherry. She's CPR's justice reporter. Let's lighten the mood a bit with some Election Day trivia. We asked public historian Sam Bach of History Colorado to dig up some surprising facts about state government and elections. Sam, hello to you. Hi, Ryan. It's great to be here. We're going to switch up the roles here and have you play Quizmaster asking me questions. This is not a role I'm used to. It should be fun. I have to know, though, first off, uh, did you know everything you're going to ask me, or was this a learning opportunity for you as well? Every day is a learning opportunity for me, Ryan. I learned a ton. Okay, so there are some questions you didn't know the answer to. That's right. Makes me feel better about what we're embarking on. Okay, uh, let's do this thing. All right. Go ahead. Here we go. I want to know if you know how Coloradans got their ballots for the first several years of state elections. So this is when Colorado is a state, not a territory? Yeah, yeah, from 1876 on. I mean, I, I, I'm not familiar enough with the history of the Pony Express and the Postal Service to say for sure, but I would just think by mail. You would think, and yet that's not actually accurate because the government didn't print ballots for people for the first maybe 10 years after Colorado had become a state. And so people got their ballots from the local political parties, uh, from the newspaper, and even from local saloon owners. So (laughs) you can see it's a a system that's kind of ripe for abuse, but people weren't any less concerned about, you know, the security of their votes back then. And so uh, starting sometime in the 1880s, uh, Colorado started printing its official ballots for people. Oh, that is fascinating. So there weren't official ballots. I mean, could I have turned something in on the back of a napkin? Yeah, back of a napkin, as long as you spelled the candidate's name right, um, which is why a lot of these saloon owners got a hold of ballots. And you can see, you know, if they had just happened to leave the one question off the uh, ballot uh, that didn't favor them business-wise or politically, you know, people didn't have a chance to vote on it. Wow. Okay. Uh, let's see. I'm So far, I'm losing. Uh, what's our next question? Zero for one. So let's see <laughs> if you can do better here. Um, I want to know if you know what the record number of governors Colorado has had in a 24-hour period might be? Take a guess. Oh, someone stepping in into the role. The number of governors that have officially held the office. So you'd have the governor, and then the governor might have, whatever, been traveling or fallen ill, and you'd have the lieutenant. 
Uh, I'm going to go with three, just because two seems a little too facile. Right. That's just about every year we switch a governor. So three is right. Um, and the backstory is uh, it's a it's a story that makes modern political shenanigans look kind of tame. In 1904, uh, Colorado's laborers and business leaders were, you know, having tension uh, and sometimes violent tensions erupting over pay and, and workplace conditions. Okay. So the Democratic Party put a man named Alva Adams. You might know the Alva B. Adams Tunnel. Um, that's Alva Adams up for election. And uh, he was running against a guy named James H. Peabody, the Republican candidate. Well, the Supreme Court which was appointed by Republicans, uh, decertified Alva Adams' election because of some perceived fraud, and they put James H. Peabody in office. Um, but Peabody had similar allegations of fraud dogging his campaign. And so the same day that he was inaugurated, he handed power <laughs> over to his lieutenant governor, Jesse F. McDonald. And this was all uh, early on in 1905. I see. So you get to the three because there's a transition of administrations, not because there's like a huge illness in the middle of one. Right. So it's really all has to do with <laughs> politics and who wins the uh the Supreme Court fight. So three governors in the span of 24 hours in Colorado. That's right. Wow. Uh, let's do one more before the next break. All right. Well, so here's one that you might not know. Um, 1876 is the year we became a state. Yeah. It's an election year. Were Coloradans allowed to cast ballots for the president in that election year, 1876, the first one they were eligible oh, for? Oh, that's interesting. Of course, we're the centennial state because 1876 is statehood 100 years exactly. after the founding of the nation. Did we get to vote for president in the first year of statehood? Sam, I'm going to go with yes. I, I don't know. I feel like you, you should get a reward when you become a state and voting in the presidential election, which comes late in the year, feels like a nice reward. You would think so. But oh, no, as it turns out, the answer is no. And there's a really fascinating story behind this. Okay, so Colorado becomes a state officially on August 1st of 1876. That's Colorado Day. We celebrate every year. And uh, as it turns out, there wasn't enough time to get a general election ready, you know, to get all the ballots out and to get uh, everybody ready to vote in rural Colorado. But if I could vote on the back of a napkin, yeah, what do you mean get the ballots? Oh, out? you have to make sure it's uh, you know, secure, you have to get the county clerks in place. And so between August 1st and November, you know, the state didn't have time to arrange for a general election. So the state legislature, which had already been elected, selected the winner of Colorado's three electoral votes. Oh. That was President Rutherford, uh, Rutherford B. Hayes. Hayes won that election by just one electoral college vote. <laughs> so Colorado's electoral college votes are three votes were decisive in that election. We were the Pennsylvania of the time. Right, exactly. Oh, that's fascinating. So it's not that Colorado didn't get a vote, but individual Coloradans did that's not right. get that's the right. vote. That's right, and that's the last time in Colorado history that we chose electors in that way. Okay. Hayes has Colorado to thank. He does. What's next? All right, here we go. This is a true or false, so 50-50. <laughs> true or false, Colorado voters decided to ban alcohol four years before the rest of the country went dry. Oh, I think that's true. It is true. Yeah, we, we I think we did a story in Prohibition. Yeah. What's the story here? Well, it's pretty shocking. Um, you know, we don't think of Colorado as being sort of leading the way in terms of uh, banning substances, right? We think of Colorado in terms of uh, legalizing substances. Yeah, but the temperance movement was big here. That's exactly right. It was really strong, particularly um, in front range communities like Fort Collins, Greeley, Boulder, and Colorado Springs. And so uh, in 1916, 
the state voted to go completely dry, ban alcohol together. What's really funny is that Denver stood really strong against prohibition. They said, no, we want to continue drinking. And they <laughs> actually, uh, there was an effort in Denver to not have to obey the law and to keep saloons open and breweries going here in Denver. And of course, the state Supreme Court said, no, you can't keep going. This, you know, The law is the law. Oh. Um, and so on January 1st, uh, 1916, uh, the last beer was poured and that's it. Before national prohibition. Before national prohibition, four whole years. Okay, so I got that one right. Yeah. Is that the first one I've gotten right? No, you got two. You got oh, the, okay. uh, the three governors as well. So that's, okay, you're, good. you're 50-50. You're two for two. Okay, let's go. What's All right. next? Uh, here's another true or false for you. Colorado was the first state in which women achieved the right to vote by popular referendum. Yes, I think that's true, which puts us like just behind Wyoming, right? That's right. Yeah. Utah and New Jersey had also allowed women to vote earlier, but um, the legislature actually took that right away uh, before 1893. So in 1893, when Colorado women achieved the right to vote, uh, only women in Utah were voting. But what's unique is that the Colorado vote for women came from a vote of men. So what we like to say as Colorado is that Colorado is the first state in which women uh, achieved the right to vote when men came to their senses. Uh, it's also true that the vote for women came very unevenly so that women of color, for instance, were not afforded the franchise. That's exactly as soon right. As white and they were excluded from the suffrage movement um, that was really led by these uh, intellectual white women uh, at the time. And so the efforts of uh, women of color in that movement have really been ignored. And it's just a fascinating area of study right now. Let's see if I can get the next one. All right. What are the three languages that Colorado's state constitution was originally printed in? English, Spanish, and... Oh, my goodness. I don't know whether to choose... I mean, French doesn't seem like it would be very present here or an indigenous language. Right. But neither does German. And that oh, is the third language. Yes, of course, because yeah. of immigrants that had come here from Germany. Huge numbers of German immigrants coming uh, in those early years. So there's an er, there's a version of the first constitution in Colorado in German. Yeah. And in fact, you know, they're printed in pamphlets in all three languages and distributed throughout the state in a bid to build enthusiasm for the state constitution and to get people to vote for statehood. Huh. Okay. I'm totally going to Google the German version of Colorado's constitution. What's next? All right. How many times did Colorado attempt to come, become a state before it finally stuck? Oh, I have no idea. Let's see. Six. Ah, it's just four. Just four. <laughs> just four. <laughs> it's still a lot of asking. It's a lot of asking. And if you think about who they're asking, you know, this is the U.S. Congress and president. Um, it's not all that surprising. The gears of, you know, bureaucracy kind of grind pretty slowly, and especially when it comes to politics. And I think that's what's, um, you know, one of the really interesting thing about this. Uh, after the Civil War, Colorado asked to join the nation twice as a state. Um, and the effort was blocked by uh, President Johnson, who took office after Lincoln. And the reason was essentially partisan politics. Mm. Johnson was afraid that um, the people of Colorado would vote for Republicans. And as it turns out, he was right. Okay, try to stump us again here. All right. True or false, Colorado was the first state to have any woman join the state legislature. It seems on 
point for Colorado. I'm going to yeah. say it's true. Yeah, it is. Yeah, we're really leaders in this area in Colorado. So uh, three women, Clara Cressingham, uh, Carrie Hawley, and Frances Clock, all joined the state legislature in 1895. Um, each of them served one term. But I think what's really cool is on top of being the first legislature to have women in it, we were the first legislature to have women in leadership positions. Oh. Um, when uh, Cressingham uh, became the first woman to serve as the secretary of the House Republican Caucus. Sam, thank you for this. How did I do? Have you been keeping... I realize I haven't been keeping score. I've been so fascinated by your storytelling. I think you have about four right and three wrong, if I'm counting right. Okay. Um, Barely a passing grade. I'm so grateful for your time. Happy Election Day. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks for having me here. Sam Bach, public historian, and for our purposes today, quiz master. And so, dear listener, how are you holding up right now? Maybe this describes how you've felt lately. Are you having trouble sleeping? Focusing? Is Kanye West running for president? Does it seem like everything is out of control? Like the whole world is collapsing, and all you can think about is, will there be enough toilet paper? That is the start of a parody ad from a film production company in Boulder called A Dream Tree. They use laughter to encourage people to vote. And if they've captured how you're feeling, well, they may be able to diagnose you as well. You may be suffering from COVID-20 because obviously voting is the answer in 2020. Unlike COVID-19, COVID-20 has a proven cure available now. Prescription Strength Voting. Prescription Strength Voting treats the chronic symptoms of WTFs. Or seriously, what the f*** is happening with my country? And remember, you have till 7 tonight to get that voter RX. Well, big retailers like Walmart and Kroger are stockpiling certain items. The hope is to avoid a run-on. Uh, run on stuff, that is, if there's another COVID-19 lockdown. Supply chain expert Jack Buffington teaches at the University of Denver and joins us with some perspective. Hi, Jack. Hi, Ryan. And I, I have to think, are, are we talking about toilet paper here? Uh, the, the run on this stuff that happened early on in the pandemic, what are the concerns? Yeah, I don't think the concerns are really about toilet paper. I think we have bigger concerns regarding healthcare supplies uh, even food supplies. But I think there's a bigger problem that exists than even COVID that we're seeing in our supply chain system. What are those problems? I think we have a supply chain system that is based on principles of the 20th century that doesn't really focus on you know, some of the things that people really need in society. And I think certain elements of the supply chain are very limited, such as you know having enough truck drivers uh, when you think of having enough supplies, you know, you can think about toilet paper, but the question is, are we going to make it through the pandemic with enough personal protective equipment for our healthcare professionals? So I think there's, you know, bigger concerns that we need to look at that will remain after COVID has been uh, managed. And so you, you think these were problems that existed before the pandemic and that are being exacerbated by it? I do. Yeah, I think there's our supply chain systems are out of balance uh, and I think this problem has existed for probably uh, 30 or 40 years, especially in some of the, the you know, really storied cities that used to be, you know, part of our supply chain when it comes to manufacturing. If you think about, you know, the pandemics that they're facing, it's beyond COVID. There's been a pandemic in some of these communities for decades. 
of did just talk about those forces? Um, a lack of economic opportunity. Um, you know, there's an imbalance between uh, supply and demand where, you know, people are just consumers. And if you're just a consumer and you can't, you know, pro- provide for your family sufficiently, then, you know, bad things happen. I think we see are permeating. So you see these as deeper issues. I do wonder how stable the food chain is, particularly right now running up to the holidays. Yeah. So the one thing that that everybody needs to understand about supply chains is the challenge of supply chains is volatility. And what we saw happen in the spring uh, was a challenge with um, a forecast problem where it completely came out of the blue with this whole COVID thing. So supply chains have been stabilizing since the spring. Uh, there's really no food proce- uh, processor manufacturer that isn't expecting what's going to happen in the fall and the winter. So you're, you're just not going to see the volatility that we saw in the spring. That is to say the first wave of this w- w- led to a certain amount of preparation? Correct. And what's happening today, Ryan, is these companies are carrying a lot more inventory than they've carried in the past, okay. and maybe to do a shift from food to medical supplies. Uh, back in the spring... Uh, hospitals would carry maybe seven days of inventory of a certain product and their distributors would carry a, a month. Or now they're carrying 90 days, 120 days because they would just want to make sure that they can support things. But with that additional inventory um, comes higher costs and we're seeing that uh, in our food, you know, in our re- food retailers where costs are going to go up as a result. Help us understand why that drives up costs to have more on hand. Correct. Because, uh, you know, the, the way supply chains work is yeah. this is concept called lean supply chains, uh, and it's just-in-time inventory management. So the goal is is to only have what you need in order to keep the cost down, because if you have to carry more inventory, that means more carrying costs, you know, more storage and everything like that. So there's a, there's a cost associated with that with retailers. And what retailers have to be concerned about, especially physical retailers, is that with um, big e-commerce retailers like Amazon that are so huge and efficient, um, that if you're a physical retailer, you have to worry about, number one, having food on your shelves, but you also have to worry about your prices. So there's this conundrum of not running out of supply, but at the the same time keeping your costs um, effective. Uh, It's a fascinating balance there. Has the pandemic accelerated our move towards e-commerce versus bricks and mortar? It has very much so accelerated this whole movement towards e-commerce. What we're finding after the pandemic, Ryan, is that consumers are much more willing to not only purchase more things online, but also to purchase greater, larger purchases where, you know, maybe before they would buy something online if it was under $50, where now people are buying cars online. Um, And this is requiring retailers to change how they view the consumer, even retailers like um, Walmart. So Walmart went through a uh, large restructuring process right now because they understand that Amazon has over 40% of the e-commerce traffic and Mm. they only have 5% even though Walmart is three times larger than Amazon, this thing is exploding. And so uh, retailers uh, were expecting it to change, but COVID just you know, made that much more 
uh, faster and larger. Yeah, I've been thinking about my own habits and I've been doing grocery delivery and I'm not sure I'll go back to the before times behavior. Uh, I, I do want to know about <laughs> Clorox wipes. You know, wipes were so dear to people and have been uh, throughout the pandemic and they've also been really hard to get a hold of sometimes. Maybe that's a bit of a specific question to ask a supply chain expert, but could you reflect on that, Jack? Yeah, so uh, there's there's if you look at the supply and demand of what's happening today. Some things are um, volatile due to an increase in demand. And Clorox wipes is obviously a good example of that, right? And so, uh, you know, it makes sense in the supply chain to allocate those towards hospitals and, and, and other areas so consumers aren't, you know, are faced with shortages. Um, so that's not necessarily a, a matter of volatility between supply and demand. That's a function of just greater demand. Got it. Okay. And we might expect that to continue, the great demand and not necessarily the availability to the audience that wants it. Yeah. So Clorox has, uh, and companies like them, have increased their uh, manufacturing capacity. But you just can't increase it that much because you have to put in more machines. And and so we're also seeing this on the healthcare side, um, a lot of volatile, you know, increased production. Thank you so much for being with us. The perspective on the supply chain, not just during COVID, but uh, some of the issues going into this. I appreciate it, Jack. Yeah, you're welcome, Ryan. Jack Buffington, Assistant Professor of Supply Chain Management at DU's Daniels College of Business. America's soccer stars, including Colorado's Lindsey Horan, are back on the field for the first time since the pandemic started. The U.S. women's national team held a training camp, which wrapped up in Commerce City just last week. CPR reporter and resident soccer fan John Daly caught up with Horan and asked her how life has changed during the pandemic. We obviously weren't playing. I think the last camp that we had together as a team was in uh, March for She Believes and Obviously, this is the first camp that we've been together. Um, I was actually doing quarantine here in Denver, which was nice. I got to kind of stay in my routine and my training and also kind of get to be home for some of the summer, which never happens. But for our NWSL season with Portland, we ended up doing the Challenge Cup in Utah, which was actually an interesting but cool thing that we put on. I think we were the first league in the U.S. to actually make that happen. And yeah, we just got done with the fall series, uh, which is just four games. And we are now here in, uh, in Colorado. How is the way that you go about doing what you do, training and meeting as a team, all that stuff? How's that changed now during COVID? Before this camp, obviously all meetings and, and whatnot were, were on Zoom. And then obviously when we're in the bubble, we're getting tested and and we have our protocols, you know, wearing our masks and everything, and things are a little bit more strict. But I think now that we're here in this bubble, we've all been tested and, and we're come back negative, that we can um, actually been a little bit closer together and train again. And things are obviously different. You, <laughs> meals aren't the same. Driving to training is not the same. Everyone's a little bit spread out, the six feet kind of thing. But yeah, you know, obviously just happy to be back on the field together. So essentially, you have 27 players here in Colorado. You're out at Dick's Sporting Goods Park in Commerce City. This is an 11-day training camp. And this is all the domestic-based players for the U.S. team, right? What, what are these training sessions like when you've got really, you know, the world champions all 
playing against each other. It must be pretty intense competition. To be fair, it's, it's an interesting camp because a lot of our players are actually overseas right now playing with European teams. So we have a good mix of, you know, I think there's 10 of us that were from this recent World Cup and then a lot of newer players and a lot of younger players coming through the system. So kind of exciting to see a lot of new faces and to just get back to national team team training. You may have heard some of the stories about some of these teams like the Dream Team back in the day and, and stories about the some of the scrimmages being like some of the best basketball that was ever played because the, the, the A team and the B team were really the best players in the world. Does it ever feel like that when the U.S. national team, the, the team that might be going to the World Cup, is all together and training against each other, practicing against each other in the warm-up for a big event? Always. <laughs> yeah, it's. Uh, I think during the World Cup, we even said that it's incredible to see the type of players that we have here and how competitive we make it. And I think that's why we are so special is because there's so many special players and high quality players here that make it harder for the starters every single day. And what pushes our team to be the, the absolute best, everyone has to be on their toes at all times. And someone's always coming um, up the system. So I think that is what makes it so competitive here. And I would always say that our, our first team is obviously the best in the world now because we won the World Cup and our second team is, is what helped us get there. And right now you were initially going to be playing in the Olympics this past summer. That got postponed, obviously, but now it's scheduled for next summer. So is everything you're doing now all about kind of building up and figuring out who's going to be on that team for, I believe it's the Olympics are now set for August of 2021. Obviously, this first camp was kind of more about getting people back together and, and again, seeing some new faces. We haven't had camp in a very long time, but it's kind of the start of preparation for, for the Olympics that we obviously are, are planning on happening. So, yeah, I think everything that we do right now is looking forward to that. You have a new coach. Vlatko Andonovsky, who replaced Jill Ellis, who coached the team to the two World Cup uh, wins in a row. What's it like to have a new coach after working under another coach for a long time? Does it change the the vibe on the team? Does it change the roles that uh, players play or that, that you might expect that you would play with uh, the new coach? Um, to be fair, Vlatko hasn't had a lot of time in here with us since uh, he kind of took over last November and then and then COVID hit. It's it's only been a few camps with him, so obviously still changing a few things and, and meshing us back together and obviously there's so much that makes this team special that you want to keep and but I think Lyco brings a lot of new ideas and new tactical tactical ways and, and how he sees the team playing. So I think that's exciting and I think he's still gonna want to implement a lot more right now. And you're a midfielder, center midfielder often what do you see your role being? What's the position on the field where you want to be? Those midfield positions, especially in the center, are kind of like the quarterback, uh, the transition between the defense and the offense, uh, playmakers looking to uh, set up goals or score goals themselves. How do you see your role and, and what's your best position on the field? Honestly, I, I've always seen myself as a box-to-box midfielder, but it's kind of, you know, at the point where it's where the coach needs me. Um, I feel like I'm pretty versatile in the midfield, whether I can play 6, 8, or 10. But for me, I, I obviously like getting in the attack. But again, it's about getting on the field for me. So you're happy to be 
on the side if you have to be, or just kind of wherever it, wherever, wherever the coach sees you. Yeah, wherever the coach sees me, but yeah, would would like to be in the midfield. Let's talk a little bit about uh, your growing up playing soccer here in Colorado. What was that like? What kind of kid were you? And uh, at what point did you start to see uh, like a significant future for yourself in soccer? Yeah, I think as a young kid, I grew up playing for for Table Mountain. My mom was my first coach, which is lovely. Kind of went through a few different teams, ended up at Colorado Rush. And I think that's where motivation and inspiration kind of hit for like what I wanted to to be in in soccer and I wanted to be on a on the national team and I wanted to play in World Cup and I wanted to go play overseas so I think growing up there playing in that club with some of the coaching staff that we had there really really got what was what was inside of me for so long and and these dreams kind of you know came to life and and it ended up happening for me, but I would say my environment here was absolutely incredible and, and pushed me to accomplish those dreams as well. You mentioned Colorado Rush. That's one of the local club teams here in Colorado, competitive club teams. Do you remember a moment, Lindsay, when things just clicked for you at a young age and you realized that you wanted to perhaps play for the U.S. team or to become a professional? Or was it something that evolved over time? Was it was there a, a, a specific moment or a game and you're like wow wait a minute I I'm good at this I could do this I think it's more of a little bit of inspiration from my coach at the time who's Tim Schultz who's um, the president of Colorado Rush I think he had a speech with us that kind of one spoke to me and it was it was more about like motivating us to be the best that we can be at whatever that that thing is that we love and I think I would say that to anyone is is obviously finding something that you love in life and, and putting everything that you have towards that, whether that's soccer, whether that's, you know, becoming an engineer or a lawyer or whatever, um, to kind of find your passion. And if that's your passion, you should be working your absolute hardest to to make that dream come true. And I think for me, it was like, there was nothing else in my life that I cared more about um, other than my family and, and soccer. And I fell in love with soccer from such a, such a young age. So yeah, I think that conversation really motivated me. And, and, you know, he even said, you know, you could be the best player in the world if, if you want to be, if, if you want to be in the national team, if you want to go play college, et cetera, et cetera, you can make that happen, but that's in your control. And I think that spoke a lot to me and, and I, I wanted to make it happen. Thanks, Lindsay. Um, good luck to you. And uh, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Bye. Colorado soccer star Lindsey Horan speaking with CPR's resident soccer fan, John Daly. Horan and the U.S. women's national team just held their first training camp of the pandemic in Commerce City. And that's our show today. NPR special coverage of election night starts at 5 this evening. Remember that polls close in Colorado at 7 and we'll have results as they come in at CPR.org as well. I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for spending time with us. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.